Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. If you came in after the uh, announcements this morning, one, if you're visiting us for the first time today, we'd love to know. There's visitor cards in the seat backs in front of you. We'd love for you to fill that out and drop it in the tithes and offerings box in the back. Give us a chance to connect with you and uh, maybe understand what needs you may have and how we can pray for you and what you're looking for in a church. Um, and then uh, as far as the other announcements, if you did miss those, just make sure that you check out the Connect board on your way out. There's a lot of different things happening here at uh, Calvary in the upcoming weeks, and we want to make sure that you don't miss out on that. Opportunities for fellowship and study and um, lots of good things. So uh, make sure to be on the lookout for those. Okay, so as I mentioned, we will continue our study this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been there for several weeks now, and um, we're, we're making our way today. We're really coming to a turning point in Matthew. Uh, this is a place where we'll begin looking at what is the final week, the last eight days of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Uh, it, it's kind of amazing uh, considering all that we've covered so far within the gospel and that we have a little over a quarter of the book left. And so just over a quarter of the gospel of Matthew is dedicated to just eight days. Gives you an idea of how much happens in just a short period of time in, at the end here of Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, it's pretty incredible. And, and, and I think it's important though we've done this uh, pretty consistently over the last several Sundays it's important for us, I think, to consider where we've been in the context of what it is that we're studying. If you think back over the last several chapters of Matthew, really even if you go back to the beginning there, towards the beginning, in Matthew's, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we had there the, the Sermon on the Mount, and much instruction, which in that instruction, really Jesus began to lay the groundwork for what life in the kingdom is intended to be like. And if there was anything we could take away from that, any summary that we could really hold on to, it's that the way that we, the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we uh, naturally do things is so different than God's way. And, and so it's important for us as we grow in Christ, as we learn, as we're sanctified, as we are changed to begin to live differently, to begin to see things the way that God sees things because Jesus is so different. Even over the last several chapters, really, if you go back to Jesus' transfiguration there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and how he brought the focus back to himself and helped just a few of the disciples to see his glory and his power and the fact that really it's, it's all about him. And when I say it's all about him, it's truly everything. It's about him when it comes to salvation, when it comes to uh, our life with, with Christ, when it comes to following after God, when it comes to just everything that is encompassed within our saving faith. It's about Jesus. And on the way down from that mountain... Uh, he begins to give instruction, to give insight into the fact that he is going to die. That Jesus is going to lay down his life for the church, for us. And, and, and at that time, and even still, and what we'll consider here today, uh, the disciples aren't fully understanding it. They're not fully grasping it. We're beginning to see that Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to lay down everything for you. And he begins to give us great instruction around humility, around what it, what it means and, and how it is that we are to come to Christ. We're to come to him humbly. We're to come to him in dependence, like, like a child, like that very example he had given us prior to that moment. He, he 
here, here as he comes down from the mountain, as they, as they make their way into town, the tax collectors from the, who collect the temple tax, they come to Jesus. They, they ask the question of, is he, is he going to pay the temple tax? And, and here in this, in this moment, Jesus essentially says, I don't need to pay it. I don't, I don't have to, but, but I don't want to offend. And so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to go ahead and, 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 and do something that I'm not expected to do for the sake of somebody else. And this really starts this process then. This is kind of what brings us into chapter 18, where chapter 18 is all about relationships. It's all about relationships and the fact that relationships, the way that they're supposed to function, the way that God desires for them to function, is very different than how we often relate to one another. The question is asked, or not even the question so much as the debate is happening as to who is the greatest. And, and Jesus really interrupts that conversation. And it's there that he gives us this example of a child as he sets a child in the midst of them and says, this is how you're supposed to come to me. Independence, right? Not having any power, any strength, any, any prestige, any, no claim to anything, no authority. You're completely humble. You're dependent on me just as a child is to their parents. That's how you come into the kingdom. And from there, he gives us a challenge about taking very seriously our own lives, our own walks with the Lord so that uh, our, our personal holiness comes into view, sin in our lives. And not just because we shouldn't have sin in our own lives, but because it affects other people. Because we're to care about other people and, and how we affect other people. Jesus gives the example of a shepherd who has 99 sheep, but, but leaves them to go after one, giving us a sense of, of, of how radically Jesus views the importance of just one person. And from there, then, it takes us into instruction as to how we're to handle it when somebody does offend you. That we're to pursue reconciliation, we're to pursue restoration, we're to pursue peace. Gives us, then, a parable that helps us to see the damage that's done when we are not forgiving even though we've been forgiven much, that we are expected to be a people that forgives. And from there, he takes us into the marriage relationship, helps us to see the importance that he places upon that covenant relationship. The fact that marriage is a picture between Christ and the church. And, and through all of this, what Jesus is really showing us here is that it's, it's about humility. It's about being humble, thinking less of yourself and, and more about other people. Or I guess I should say thinking of yourself less, right? Not focused on you, but focused on others. And, and through this all, Jesus is continuing to, to point people to the fact that he's the example. He's the one that's going to lay down his life. In fact, what we really see throughout here is that Jesus is is dying to serve people, and he's serving so that he will die. Right? I mean, it, it, it's, this, it's this process that he's going through where he's helping people to see this is the way you're to live your life, and you're to do it like me. You're to lay it all down. But of course, it's difficult for us to understand this. It's difficult when pride has a really strong hold on us to, to grasp some of these things. And we see this in the case of the disciples as well, that they're struggling to understand everything that Jesus is telling them. And so we pick up here in chapter 20 and verse 17, and we read this. In verses 17 through 19, it says, Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem. So now they're making their way up to Jerusalem, and it is in fact up. They've made their way from the area around the Dead Sea up towards the Mount of Olives. I mean, there's several thousand feet, a few thousand feet at least, of elevation change as they're making their way into Jerusalem. But you always go up to Jerusalem. It's always up, never down. There's imagery there. And so as they're going up, he takes the 12 disciples aside on the road, 
And he says to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. It seems pretty plain to us what Jesus is communicating at this point, but we have the benefit of hindsight. What we'll see here is, at least based off of how Matthew records things here, it doesn't seem as if they've really grasped this because there's not really any response to what Jesus has said, though this is now the third time that Jesus has said this. The third time that he has predicted his death and his resurrection. But for whatever reason, it doesn't, at least in terms, as I said, of what Matthew records here, it doesn't, it doesn't elicit a direct response. There's, there's no recognition here of the disciples going, well, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? And... And so they don't get it. It's as if perhaps they think he's speaking in parables. Maybe they can't make sense of it. They're wondering, what is it that he's, what is it that he's referring to? And certainly Matthew here, being an eyewitness of these accounts, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit penning this, I think he's very intentional here, wanting us to know, man, we didn't get it. And so he's not going to give us any insight in any conversation that was happening. Rather, he's going to take us right to the next conversation, which shows even more they don't understand. Because what happens then here is in verse 20, this is the next thing that happens after Jesus makes this statement, that then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. So at this point now, James and John, their mom comes to Jesus, kneels before Jesus. Jesus looks at her and verse 21 says to her, what do you wish? He, he, he knows that she's coming to him to ask him a question. And what does she say? She say, oh, well, we want to understand why it is that you're saying that you're going to die because that doesn't make sense and we don't want you to die and we don't want you to go. No. She says to him, grant these two sons of mine that they may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. It had gone right over her head. It had gone right over the disciples' head what Jesus was communicating. Not just that he was going to go and die, but the, the continued instruction on humility. I can't believe, right, that this is the response until I also think about my own life and my own pride and the number of times that I too respond to Jesus in this way. You see, Jesus again for some time now has been speaking of humility, speaking of the way in which we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, that it's through humility, that it's through dependence, that salvation is a work of God, not man, that God does it in his grace and his goodness. And then Jesus says that he's going to, to die And the next thing we have is James and John's mom coming to Jesus and just saying, essentially, and I paraphrase, my boys are just so special. I'm just so proud of my boys. Will you please make sure you give them special seats in the kingdom? Now, the one thing that this proud mother gets right is is that she kneels before Jesus in her request, demonstrating that she knows that he's the one in charge. That whatever this kingdom is, though she doesn't fully understand it, she's thinking, this is the guy to ask. She gets that much right in terms of bowing before Jesus, but everything else about it is wrong. And we see then that her request is followed up by the anger of the disciples, which shows that they too are dealing with pride and that they were ignorant of what was to come. So Jesus, in verse 22, answers and says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? But of course, they quickly say to him, we are able. They're just so intent on trying to prove that, that they're ready, that they can do it, that whatever it is, they want those special seats in the kingdom. We can do it, Jesus. 
But Jesus really says, he goes, you don't know what you're asking. You don't understand. He really says to him here, are you going to be able to endure what I'm about to endure? It means suffering. Do you know what's coming? Do you know what you're going to have to go through? Suffering, persecution, laying my life down for others? The ultimate sacrifice? But they quickly respond without truly grasping any of this. And what this shows, and really this gives us our first lesson today, for those of you that are taking notes, is that pride blinds us to who Jesus is and what it is that he wants to do in our lives. Let me state that for you again. Pride blinds us to who Jesus is and what it is that he wants to do in our lives. Now listen, we all deal with pride in varying amounts, certainly. But for some, and maybe it's you this morning, maybe it's someone watching online or listening later on, maybe, maybe you're thinking, and this is your thought process, right? That, oh, I, I've been working for this. I, I deserve this. I've, I've earned this. Or, or maybe it's that I, I can do this. I can accomplish this. You have a sense of your own strength and your own power. That's pride. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't really deal with pride all that much. Well, then we just revealed that you deal with pride. Okay? So sorry to burst your bubble. You know, it's an interesting thing, and it's always, it's, it's well-intentioned, but I can think back even to when I was in preschool and kindergarten and the, you know, the motivational posters on the wall and all these different things that were intended to tell you that you were special and you, had, you were powerful and you had, you had the ability to do this or do that. And again, it was all with the intention of trying to build people up and to build up that self-esteem. The problem was it was absent of Christ, and so it's all lies. Because... When we come to a right understanding of who we are, when our pride begins to break away, what we should be saying is, I don't deserve this. I can't do this. What I need is Jesus. He can do it. He will do it. He will work through me. Now here's the thing. Jesus says to them here, in verse 23, though they don't fully understand it, He says to them, well, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And so you see, they didn't understand what it was to drink the cup and and be baptized like Jesus. But Jesus says, you're right, you will. Now they would not experience the same type of suffering that Jesus would go through, nor would their sacrifice be necessary for the forgiveness of sins the way that it was with Jesus. But not that long after this point, James in particular would be beheaded for his faith. John would live the longest out of any of them, but not because they didn't attempt to take his life. Rather, after repeated attempts to execute him, repeated uh, aspects of, of torture inflicted upon him, he would be exiled to the island of Patmos, where he would then receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what about the rest of the disciples? What about the other ten? They'd all die. Judas would take his own life, and the remainder would be martyred for their faith. Well, I don't intend to focus on this aspect specifically this morning. I think it's an interesting thing to consider that so prevalent amongst the church today and in our culture today is this message, this prosperity gospel of health and wealth and your best life now. But yet I see within Scripture here men that died. Men that had nothing. Men who, who because of their love for Jesus, who would eventually, and, and, and not too many days after this, come to a better understanding of everything that Jesus had been communicating. And then certainly He was going to be crucified. And when He was resurrected, then, then they're thinking, oh, now I get it. 
And they would come to, to understand and they, and they would make a decision there once and for all to follow Jesus. And then they would be equipped with and empowered by His Holy Spirit and they would go out on mission. And like Jesus, they would have no place to lay their head, no, no homes, no, no, no comforts of this world. They would function as strangers and pilgrims as in a foreign land because their, their passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they were looking for something better than this world. They were looking for a, a city whose foundation and maker was God. They were looking for a better promise, trusting in what God said. They weren't there yet, but they would eventually get there and they would be willing to give all to follow him. But Jesus says here, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And so Jesus here, as he had before, defers to the authority that he had submitted to God in his incarnation. Jesus, when he becomes a man, he surrenders aspects uh, of his power to Jesus, not that it was gone, he was fully God, fully man, but he submitted it to God the Father during this time, and so he defers to God once again. And then we see here the response of the rest of the disciples after this initial interaction with James and John and their mother. Verse 24, it says, and when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Now, were they displeased because they thought, oh, Guys, you, you're just so immature. You're just so limited in your understanding. Why would you ask such a foolish question? I don't think so. I think rather they were displeased because they're thinking, well, where's my mom, right? Why is my mom not here asking for me to have a special place in the kingdom? That's not fair. Is Jesus now going to give them priority? And, and why do we know this? Is it just is it pure speculation? Maybe a, a bit here, but in verse 25, Jesus calls all of them to himself. He gives all of them the same instruction here, which suggests to us that they're all dealing with pride. And so Jesus, in order to correct their thinking again and to show them how they are to live again, says to them this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, verse 25, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you. You see, so what is Jesus doing here as he begins to give them instruction? What Jesus says and why he mentions here the Gentiles is he says, look, this is the way that the world functions. He says, look at the world. Look at how the world does it. Those who seek power, who seek authority, who then want to hold that power over other people. He says, that's not the way that I do it. And guys, while, while I don't think that this gives us uh, just sort of a blanket approach to how Christians are to engage in the world or to engage in, in things like politics, which, we, which we've discussed a lot lately, I think it is a wonderful reminder to us when we do give ourselves too much to that, when we do give too much focus and attention, when we do put too much of our hope and our trust in that, is to say that the very system that we're often looking to is the very system that Jesus says that's not how we're to operate. That's not who we are. He says, it's not to be so among you. Rather, he says, this is the way that the kingdom is to be. This is the way that we're to operate. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. This is entirely unnatural. This goes against everything or the way in which we think. And this is building upon the teaching that Jesus had already given there as he talks about uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. As he says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. And so he's really reinforcing this again, and now in verse 28, he gives us an example of this. He says, you want to know what this looks like? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom 
for many. And so in effect, Jesus says now for the fourth time, I'm going to die. You want to talk about greatness? You want to talk about power? You want to talk about authority? I'm the son of man. I'm God. And I'm going to lay down my life for you. And so lesson number two for us this morning, and again, we've really seen this before, but it's this, that in Jesus' economy, the last are first and the first are last. It's flipped upside down from what we know. In his kingdom, the ones who are greatest are the ones who serve others. They're the ones who, in humility, take the lowest position. And that's what we're, to, that's what we're called to. This isn't just to us today. This isn't to you, Christian, today. Here's a decent idea if you want to give it a shot. No, it's this is how you're to live. But we are so good at putting ourselves first, aren't we? I'm glad I got a few heads shaking there. It's not just me. I can put myself first any day of the week, right? It's real easy to start thinking about me. But it's not to be so. That's not, to, that's not the way we're to be. And so Jesus here likens this great demonstration of service to himself, alluding to his own death once again, saying, just like me, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. Now this is interesting here because this word ransom, when we hear the word ransom, we probably think, oh, there's a, there's a kidnapping, right? Some, some, somebody got taken and they've got some resources and somebody else knew it and now they're going to have a note. Here's a ransom note. You want them back? Here's how much you need to pay. There's some, there's some truth in that in terms of how we look at this here. But in the original Greek, this word ransom is lutron, which is a word that speaks of a payment to release one from slavery. So we translate it that way because it's something that it's a way in which we can understand it. But what Jesus here is saying is, I'm going to give my life to pay for you to no longer be a slave. And these are the concepts that we really need to understand. I mean, much of what we're considering here today is truly just the gospel message. And and we've got to understand this because it's so easy for us to fall back into our way of thinking and the world's way of thinking, which tells us you can earn it, you can prove it, you can work for it, you can buy it. And I believe that there's some of you here this morning that maybe even, even though you've surrendered your life to Christ, you still fall back into what we call stinking thinking, that somehow you need to do it. You've had a bad day or you've slipped up a little bit or something's happened and you think, I've got to work harder, I've got to try harder, I've got to do more i got to earn it. And what God says about His kingdom is He says you can't. You can't earn it. You can't prove it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. Go back to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You had a, you had a variety of different people there. Some that were there all day. Some that were there for a part of the day. Some that were there for just an hour. And the Master, who is God in His kindness and in His goodness, says, I don't really care how long you work for. Here, I'm giving you this. And of course, it made some people mad because they're like, no, I worked harder. I did it better. And God says, you just did what I asked you to do. You came and here's your reward. He says, these are my resources. It's my grace. It's my mercy. I can dispense it however I would like. And so what we see there is that the master does not take into consideration the work of the workers. He doesn't look at them to, to, to see if they've earned it. Rather, Jesus says you're slaves. You're in bondage to this world. You're in bondage to sin. You've been taken hostage and I am freeing you with my life. And there isn't anything you need to do, so stop convincing yourself of how great you are or how great you need to be. Just humble yourself and depend on me and I'll free you. And and then here, Matthew gives us such a wonderful example of this as we see then in this next encounter. In verse 29, 
and 30, we see this. It says, now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. So there's a lot of people walking along with Jesus now. And it says in verse 30, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Some of you have heard the name blind Bartimaeus. That's who this is. And then another individual with him, the gospel of Mark gives us insight into that in Mark chapter 10. And so this this is blind Bartimaeus, and here Matthew shows us that there's two men, but it it appears that maybe Bartimaeus is a little bit more outspoken. Maybe he was one who talked more about this after, uh, after the events happened, and so that's why Mark only records him. And what we don't know about them is were they blind from birth? Did they lose their sight at some point in life? Uh, but no matter what, at this point, they're blind. And, w- and what do they do? In this day and age, what do they do? Well, there's nothing but for them to just to live life as a beggar on the side of the road. It wasn't a world at that time that afforded much opportunity to someone with a disability. And so they hear. They're listening. Their hearing is no doubt uh, heightened. And, and they hear that Jesus is coming. Now, what, what it is that they heard, we, we don't know. Probably a lot of different things. Maybe some rumblings about Jesus is coming. And they, they've known, they've heard about Jesus. They know that, that Jesus has been healing people. So maybe they hear people saying his name. They hear the, the sound of a multitude beginning to walk through the town. It, it's, it's, there's a lot of noise. There's much commotion. And, and at this point then, Bartimaeus, likely thinking, this is my chance. This is my opportunity. He cries out, making a declaration as well, saying, Lord, he calls him Lord, son of David. In other words, he says, Messiah, show me mercy. And what does it mean that this blind beggar on the side of the road is saying, show me mercy? Because that's also foreign to our way of thinking. But what this man says is, don't give me what I deserve by leaving me here on the side of the road. You see, this man had an understanding of who Jesus was, Lord, Messiah, and he also had an understanding that what I really deserve is to just remain blind and here on the side of the road. But knowing rightly who Jesus is, he said, would you show me mercy? Isn't it interesting that the blind man had greater sight than many who were walking with Jesus, who considered themselves fully whole? You see, that's what pride does. So he cries out in humility. He cries out in dependence, declaring Jesus to be Lord and Messiah. And then look at how the crowd responds in verse 31. Then the multitude warned them, saying, be quiet. Jimmy mentioned that in February, we're going to have something called Love Your Neighbor Week. It'll begin on February 14th, and it'll run through that Saturday. And it's going to be somewhat of a missions conference uh, where we're going to be spending some time considering ways in which we can better serve our community. And it's not simply, though, about here's some different opportunities for you to go out and serve. No, there's going to be actual training there because sadly, and this is not an indictment on any one of you, but rather the church as a whole, sadly, we are still very much like the multitude here who warns those who are in need of Jesus to be quiet. And for us to truly love our neighbor, we have to better understand who our neighbor is and what they need and and, and why they're in the position that they're in. If any of you are like me, there's been times where you've seen maybe a blind beggar sitting on the side of the road and you've thought to yourself, well, they must have done something to get themselves there. Why don't they do something to change their situation? 
But you see here, though the crowd was saying, be quiet, he doesn't have time for you, he doesn't want to see you, he doesn't want to hear from you, which was better stated, we don't want to hear from you, we don't have time for you. Jesus, it says here, as they continued to cry out, because Bartimaeus is saying, I'm not losing my opportunity right now. As he cries out again, have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. In verse 32, we see that Jesus stood still. That means that they're walking along, they're hearing it, and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus stops. And it says that he called them, what we find is that uh, in Mark's gospel, it says that they came over to them and they, they reached down and they talked with Bartimaeus and the other one who's sitting there with him. And they said, hey, Jesus is calling for you. And they get up and they make their way over to Jesus. And, and guys, what a wonderful thing it is in our lives when in desperation and in humility and independence, which is exactly what he wants, we cry out and Jesus calls. He calls us to himself. And he doesn't just call you to himself, but when you get there, like he does for these men, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And you see, that is who Jesus is. When you get saved, it's not as if you're now God's gift to creation. Rather, what we understand is that he came for you. This is what it's been all about. This is what Jesus has been trying to say all along. I'm here for you. I'm here to serve you. I love you so much, I'm going to give my life for you. And so as they come to him here, because they understand how they're to approach him in humility, independence, I'm trying to beat a dead horse there, right? He says, what do you want me to do for you? That's who Jesus is. Praise God. And so Jesus has been saying over and over again, humility and dependence. You can do nothing. I will do it. I came to serve, not to be served. And here before Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem into the last week of his earthly life and ministry, as he's got, the, he's got the, the, the cross in view, he knows what's coming, he's ministering, and he has this encounter that shows us exactly what it is that he's looking for. And this is our third lesson for today, that the way to Jesus is through humble dependence, trusting in him to do the work. And really, that's justification by faith. It's believing on him. It's coming to him and, and, and knowing that he does it. And, and the question should be asked, is Jesus calling you? I mean, may, maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching online and, and you've never really surrendered your life to Christ and you're at a place where the Holy Spirit's drawing you under repentance and it's time for you to just say, Lord, have mercy on me. Or maybe it's to you, Christian, who have found yourself again in this, this pattern of thinking that you can do it. These various circumstances in your life that you're trying to fix and you're trying to address and you're trying to make it better. But you've not gone to him and just said, Lord, I can't do it. You know, one of the greatest prayers that I ever pray personally for me, the times where I just feel absolutely at peace and in a right relationship with God is when I come to Jesus with a problem and I say, I can't do anything about this. Lord, I, I have tried and I have failed. There's nothing I can do. I can't do it. Will you do it, Lord? Will you take it? The times when uh, amongst other believers and we're faced with an issue maybe or we're uh, trying to figure out what to do and, and we come to that place of, and it's like, hello, why didn't we come there earlier? Where we just go, Lord, would you do it? Would you take it? Would you go before us? We sing these songs about him fighting our battles and it's like, and then we go, but, but, but nope, I'll sing it, but then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fight because I'll do it better and I'll do it faster. I don't have time to wait. I mean, so many different ways. And we can just come to him and, and he's ready. He's, he's there on a regular basis saying, what do you want me to do for you? 
how can I serve you? Chick-fil-A's got nothing on Jesus, right? I mean, he, he's the one. He's the original one saying, I'm here for you. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And that's what it is. They're saying that I know that you can do this. You can open our eyes. And so Jesus, he has compassion and he touches their eyes and immediately their eyes receive sight and they followed him. And these men, their eyes were opened miraculously. Their sight was restored. And this isn't just simply a story or a picture or a, a parable. I mean, this is, this is Jesus restoring sight to the blind. And we don't see the disciples do these types of miracles. We only see in scripture Jesus giving sight. And, and, and I think there's, there's something that we should learn from that, that also for, for the spiritually blind, it's only Jesus who gives us eyes to see when we come to him in humility and in dependence. Now as we come into chapter 21 here, and we're not going to, uh, we're, we're going to go through this first part of the chapter briefly here this morning. But again, I, I want us to notice something here. Before when Jesus would heal, we would often hear him say what? He would often tell people, don't, don't tell anyone, right? Not yet, don't tell anybody. Or depending on how people may refer to him, he, he, he might resist that a little bit. But, but here what we find is that with these two blind men, they call him Lord, they, they call him Son of David, and he, he doesn't resist that, right? He, he willingly lets them refer to him in that way, and then he heals them. He's happy to heal them there amongst the multitude, and he doesn't give them any instruction about keeping it quiet. No, at this point, he just starts to make his way further into Jerusalem, and that's telling us something about what's about to happen, about the time uh, that, that they have arrived at here. Jesus knows it's time. And so it's, it's here as we come into this chapter, and again, we won't spend nearly enough time on it today, but, but we come into this this point, and it's Passover week. This is the last week of his earthly life and ministry. Eight more days. And, and think of all that we've covered from the beginning of Matthew. I mean, uh, from his birth to his, to his baptism to the beginnings of his ministry to three years of his ministry throughout much of the area. I mean, geographically, uh, over these first 20 chapters, we've gone from, from Nazareth and, 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 and Bethlehem into Egypt and, and back and up to, to north of the Galilee region around down into the Dead Sea and up into Jerusalem, I mean, all over the place. And now we're coming to this, this point when it's just one week left. And by the way, it's, it's going to take us from now until Easter to cover this one week. And, and that should help us to really see how much is packed into this. And it's not just so much that we need to try and unpack and digest, uh, but, but also just, uh, I, I don't even have words for it. Because what, what's unfolding here over the next seven chapters is, is the fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, it goes all the way back to Genesis, to, the, to, the, to creation and to the fall in the garden and to that, that moment in Genesis 3.15 when God says to, to Satan, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That it's happening. It's going to happen in this week. Significant prophecies that, that from the time that the, that the order was given for Nehemiah to go and begin rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem that a clock started up until this point. And this is much of the reason why I believe in Jesus because it makes sense when I go back and I look at the Old Testament, I look at the prophecies and the way in which Jesus fulfills them. There's no doubt in my mind that he's God. And so we'll consider this more over the next several weeks, but what I want us to see here is he's coming into the city here in these first few verses, which we know is the triumphal entry. There's something that I think is important for us to consider as we think about humility and the way in which Jesus' life is an example for us. It says in chapter 21 and verse 1, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, 
Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So here as they come into Jerusalem, Jesus sends a couple of the disciples on an errand to go and get a donkey and its colt, one that has never been ridden. Now, they've, there's no indication in Scripture that Jesus has somehow arranged for this. Rather, it seems at this point, he's just comfortable more clearly displaying his lordship, saying, you go do this, and if they ask, you just tell them the Lord needs it, and they'll know. But why this specific request? I mean, were the disciples in this moment saying, oh, i got to go get a, a donkey and a colt? Maybe they were thinking already. Maybe, maybe, maybe on the way, they're starting to think about, we've, we've heard about this before. Because all of this, verse 4 says, is, was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, verse 5, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus is very intentional in this moment because he wants to demonstrate that his entrance into Jerusalem is the fulfillment of prophecy. And not just the fulfillment of prophecy, but he is going to declare that I'm your king. It comes from Zechariah in Zechariah 9, verse 9. That's what foretells of this day. Now it says in the prophecy here that the king is coming lowly, humbly, sitting on a donkey. And, and, and this is true. The way in which Jesus enters the city, in many respects it's true that it is in fact humble. But maybe not in the way that we would necessarily think. Now as, as, as you're considering this, how, how would you write this story if you yourself were waiting on a long-awaited king riding into a city here in this big week, this Passover week? How might you approach it? I think many of us would likely say, well, if, I mean, if this is ancient times, well, we're going to go out and find a pretty sweet horse, right? A stallion, a noble horse. Man, we're going to give him some nice... He's, forget these robes, man. You need some new threads, okay? And you're going to get him in a, in a good saddle, Right? maybe even a chariot and an entourage. And you can start to think of all the different ways if, we, if, if God said, hey, put on a parade for Jesus. Oh, man. And that's the way that we would write the story. But it's not the way that it happened. And so in, in, in some parts, that, is, that does help us to see that, that Jesus is different and that, yes, His entrance is humble. So here He is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, on the, on the, the colt of a donkey, a lot of people think that both of them were there because being that this colt had never been ridden before, it was likely to be more comfortable with its mother there along with it as they're riding in. And there wasn't much more that was accomplished in terms of preparing for his arrival, none of the, the, the horses and the clothing and all those different things. But I think oftentimes we hone in on the fact that, well, it's a donkey, and so that's got to be why it's so humble. But I don't know that that's entirely the case, and this is what I want us to see here this morning. Because you see, there were times when a king would ride on a donkey. That wasn't that crazy of an idea. But when they did, if a king was going to ride on a donkey, what was intended to be communicated was something very different. If the king was going to go to war, he would ride on a horse. He would ride on a war horse, maybe with a chariot. If he was not at war, he would ride on a donkey, which was a picture of peace. 
You see, if we read in the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9, and verse 9 is the one we consider there in Scripture. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But in verse 10 it says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus, as he came into Jerusalem, was communicating peace. In his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he came, yes, lowly, humbly, as one willing to lay down his life. And he came declaring that his mission was not war, but was peace. Making a way for peace between man and God. In fact, in Luke's gospel, his account of the triumphal entry gives us more insight into what Jesus said. In chapter 19 of the gospel of Luke, in verses 41 and 42, it says this, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, Jesus was bringing peace, not war, once again, challenging the way that we think and certainly the way that many were thinking who cried out to him on the road. It's in verse 6 we read, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. A parade of sorts was beginning to happen as people took notice. Verse 9, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so here now they're crying out in their tongue. Hosanna, save now. Save now. The fact is many who cried out to Jesus here saying save us, save us now would not long after this also cry out crucify him. Because their perspective of Jesus and what Jesus was going to accomplish and, and what they wanted from him was blinded by their pride. There was a difference for many in the streets that day who were crying Hosanna from the blind men that we saw not long before this. The blind men declared rightly who Jesus was based on their understanding of their need for him. They'd been broken of their pride. But for many shouting Hosanna, still in pride, they were looking for something else. They were looking for what they desired. They were looking for a powerful earthly ruler. They were looking for worldly power, for worldly freedom and deliverance and, and political power. They didn't want saved from the grip of sin. They wanted saved from those that they had learned to despise. As we often see in Scripture, and Pastor Jimmy's pointed this out many times, it seems these people wanted all the benefits of the kingdom without the king. And in verse 10, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so this word moved, it's the, it's the Greek word seismos. And it literally means it quaked. It means the city, was, the city was quaking. The city was shaking by all the uproar that was happening as they cry out, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And we're going to end on this verse and David, can we do a closing song today? Good. I didn't have it during the first service, but we're two minutes ahead of schedule. So, Listen, they said Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, and friends, he is so much more than that. Yes, he is prophet, 
But here in his entry to Jerusalem, we see he's also declaring that he's king. And shortly he's going to go into the temple and he's going to clear the the court of the Gentiles from the corruption that's taking place there, further conveying that he's also priest. And so this Jesus, our Jesus, is priest, king, and prophet. And in his entry into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, he comes in humility, he comes on a donkey, bringing peace. And that's what's before us today. But here's the thing, he's going to come again. Scripture tells us He's going to come again. And the next time, He's going to come in the same place, but Revelation 19 tells us that He's going to come on a horse. And if you remember the imagery from earlier, if He comes on a horse, that means He's coming to make war, and indeed He will. And when He does, He will not come to die and to rescue sinners, but He will come to be crowned king and to rule over sinners. And at that time, those who have not in humble dependence surrendered their lives to Him will be judged and condemned. But those who are His, not of our own merits, but only of His, will come in glory with Him and will stand before Him clothed in righteousness. Amen? I need an amen on that one. And see, here's the thing for our final point today, which is really just a question, is which one are you? Have you, like blind Bartimaeus, been broken of your pride and in humility cried out to Jesus for mercy and grace? Or are you like the others, still in your pride, seeking of Jesus that which you want or you think you deserve and only that? And see, here's the thing. Jesus is still moving through our cities and our communities today. He is still shaking the foundations of this earth. If you didn't see that, if you didn't experience that over this past year, then you've got to wake up. He is shaking the world. Why is He doing it? Because he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. He's saying there's still time. And he's still imploring his church to get out and fulfill the Great Commission. To seek to save the lost. To bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. To share with whomever it is that's in your circle of influence the truth of the gospel. And yes, to be willing to lay down your life for it should it be required. He's still imploring his church to love The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to serve others. And so we got to respond. It's incumbent upon us to respond, to say, what will I do? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause here this morning. We do give you thanks, Lord, for your word. We give you thanks for the power of it, Lord, knowing that it's different than any other thing that we could read in this world. It's inspired. It's without error. It's your word which you exalt above your own name and it calls us, Lord, to, calls us to account, challenges us. We see within it, Lord, the way that you desire for us to live our lives and we admit, Lord, that it can be hard, but it doesn't change that we're required to do it or, Lord, that you will equip us for it. So help us, Lord, to be a people who modeled after you, Lord, are willing to lay ourselves down for another. That may sound extreme and it's not often required of us, Lord, but day in and day out, We can do so just in serving other people, Lord. And esteeming others is better than ourselves. Lord, for the the believer here today, help, help them to do that, Lord. Help me to think of myself less and of others more, to serve others and to serve them most faithfully by sharing the truth of the gospel. For those that maybe have yet to surrender their lives to you, may today be that day when they, like Bartimaeus, cry out, Lord, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. But I know you are Lord. I know you are Messiah. I know you are Savior. Would you show me mercy? Would you restore me? Would you give me eyes to see? Make that your prayer today. Surrender your life to Him. 
Father, we love you and we praise you. Lord, we give you thanks for who you are, Lord, for what it is that you've done, what you are doing, and what you're going to do. And Father, we also pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. We long for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.